Tower of Six Talk. Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome. This is the Mark Riley Show, heard weekly at this particular time on the Progressive Radio Network. And we're glad you're with us on this Wednesday night, which it really feels a little bit more like March than it does like April. We want to say, first of all, uh, rest in peace. And Lord knows he did a fantastic job while he was alive to the Reverend Gardner C. Taylor. He passed away last week at the age of 96. He was the longtime pastor until his retirement in 1990 of the Concord Baptist Church in the heart of Brooklyn, uh, a brilliant, brilliant theologian. Um, and, you know, Concord, I, I've always found, uh, so now, obviously, I'm not, a, well, not obviously, but I'm not a Baptist, but Concord always had a soft spot in my heart because at one time, many, many years ago, the Concord Baptist Church sponsored a drum and bugle corps, which I very much love. I love all marching musical activities. And a member of that drum corps back then, and I know this because he told me, was the late, great Max Roach, uh, who was uh, a drummer, started his drumming career, he told me, with the Concord Baptist Church. So we say, rest in peace to the Reverend Gardner C. Taylor. Got a lot of stuff to talk about tonight. My goodness, do we have a lot of stuff to talk about. We also have a very special guest who will be joining us at about 6.30. First, and I think it, it's on everybody's mind because so many people have seen the video, the police officer who is charged with shooting dead a 50-year-old African-American man by the name of Walter L. Scott. The officer's name is Michael T. Slagler. Uh, I'm sorry, Slager. He's, he's 33 years old. He said he feared for his life because the man had taken his uh, stun gun. But if you look at the video, the guy was like way, way far in front of him. Now, he might have lost the race to try and catch him, but the guy posed no threat that would cause Officer Slager to shoot eight shots into the guy's back. And if you look at the video, you see that's precisely what took place. What is different about this particular police shooting of an unarmed black man is that the officer was promptly arrested and charged with murder. Now, that didn't happen in the Eric Garner case on Staten Island. Didn't happen in St. Louis, Ferguson, Missouri, with the shooting of Michael Brown. It rarely happens this quickly in most cases when police officers shoot anybody, least of all an African-American. This guy was apparently arrested and charged with murder very, very quickly. Now, I'm really curious as to why that happened in this case. And if anybody has any ideas, you can certainly give me a text at 917-830-3023, 917 and, uh, you know, we can, we can share some information about this because I, I find it fascinating uh, and heartening, to be honest with you. Now, the, the guy hasn't been convicted. He's innocent until proven guilty. Uh, I would say that the videotape kind of sort of speaks for itself, if you know what I mean. But uh, he is, in fact, innocent until proven guilty. Uh this one, this one has an awful lot of interesting implications, particularly, and we're going to talk about this a little later with our guests, particularly in light of some of the protest movements that have been organized 
around the police shootings of unarmed black people appear, if you believe some articles in the press, to have been ever so slightly splintered along some very interesting lines, along age lines, which I told you all about months ago. I'm not to toot my own horn or nothing, but I told you that these protests would eventually uh, perhaps show some tension along age lines, but also along the lines of how deeply protesters involve themselves with the instruments and arms of government. Some people, uh, obviously, and, and some very high-profile people, by the way, use their influence in government to try and affect change. Other people, on the other hand, say that it's wrong to do things that way and that the movement, and this is a lot of young people feel this way, the movement needs, in its heart of hearts, to try and affect change through different means without necessarily engaging arms of government. Now, in order to affect any change at all, I believe you do have to at least deal with government. How deeply you deal is a different story, but you do have to deal with government. I mean, if you think that you could just stand back and protest and say, I'm angry and things are going to change, you're dreaming. It's not going to happen that way. It never happens that way, but we'll... We'll get into that a little bit later on. Charleston, I'm sorry, North Charleston, South Carolina, is the third largest city in the state. It's got a population of about 100,000. African Americans are about 47% of that population. Whites account for about 37%. The police department, 80% white. This is according to data from the Justice Department. Now, you know that the White House set up a task force. They recommended a host of changes to the policing policy of the country. And President Obama has sent Attorney General Eric Holder to cities around the country to try and improve police relations with communities of color. Um, I don't know. And see, the, the interesting, not the interesting, the troubling thing about what happened in this case is, and, and the New York Times chronicles it as follows. The shooting unfolded. After, after Officer Slager stopped the driver of a Mercedes-Benz with a broken taillight. Okay. Mr. Scott ran away. Officer Slager chased him into a grassy lot that abuts a muffler shop. He fired his taser, but it didn't stop Mr. Scott, according to police reports. Moments after the struggle, Officer Slager reported on his radio, and uh, this is the direct quote here, shots fired and subject is down. He took my taser according to police reports. However, the video uh, presents a different account. The video begins in the vacant lot, apparently moments after Officer Slager fired his taser. Wires, which carry the electrical current from the stun gun, appear to be extending from Mr. Scott's body as the two men tussle and Mr. Scott turns to run. Something, it is not clear whether it is the stun gun, is either tossed or knocked to the ground behind the two men. Officer Slager draws his gun, According to the video, when he fires, Mr. Scott appears to be 15 to 20 feet away and fleeing. He falls after the final eighth shot. The officer then runs back toward the initial scuffle and picks something up off the ground. Moments later, he drops an object near Mr. Scott's body. End quote from the New York Times. That's called planting in street parlance. They planted, he planted the gun, allegedly. He planted the stun gun near the body to bolster his story 
that Walter Scott had snatched his taser. Not what the video says. And, and I said this the other week, and uh, I, I will continue to stand on it. I don't know why people are so stupid, stupid, to think that their actions in public cannot or somehow will not be recorded by somebody. It may not be somebody you can see. It may not be somebody standing there in front of you. But in this case, a video was made. Now, unless Slager wants to make the argument that somebody doctored the video or messed up the video or caused the video to show something, you know, one of those who you're going to believe me or your lying eyes, the fact of the matter is it looks like the video has him dead to rights. Now, he is innocent until proven guilty. The South Carolina Law Enforcement Division has begun an inquiry of the FBI and Justice Department, which has opened a string of civil rights investigations into police departments under Mr. Holder, is also investigating. Now, the Supreme Court says that an officer may use deadly force against a fleeing suspect only when there is probable cause that the suspect, quote, poses a significant threat of death or serious physical injury to the officer or others. Now, what's... Uh, what, what I think people need to be aware of here is that charges being brought, not the same as a conviction. It is heartening to see that murder charges, without going through some tortured grand jury proceedings, without some of the stuff that went on either in Ferguson or on Staten Island, they just said, yo, you're under arrest for murder. They fired him too, by the way, did the North Charleston Police Department. So that's heartening, but that is not a conviction. It's not a conviction. And speaking of convictions, we'll talk about the case of Jokar Sarnev in a few minutes because that did result in a conviction. But this is an important distinction here. Whether or not they're going to be able to get a jury of his peers to convict him, and apparently... At least if you look at the judge, he could get the death penalty, this guy. I don't anticipate he would, even if he was convicted. But understand that he has not yet been convicted. I don't know if there are going to be widespread protests the way there were in Staten Island or in New York or across the country in the wake of the Michael Brown killing or in the wake of the Eric Garner killing. I don't know if there are going to be those kinds of protests. Maybe... The powers that be in North Charleston said, you know what, rather than go through all that, we're just going to bust this chump and charge him with murder. Maybe that's what they decided. I don't know. But it's different. It is definitely different. What is even more different is the number of people, number of police officers charged with shooting unarmed black people who actually get convicted of shooting unarmed black people. It is a ridiculously low percentage. I don't have it in front of me. But it is a low, 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 low percentage. Moving right along, ladies and gentlemen, because we we're going to have our guest come up at 630. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who it is right away. Somebody who's known, I think, to many of you. But let me just leave you in terms of North Charleston, South Carolina, with the words of the mayor there. One Keith Summy. He says, quote, according to the New York Times, when you're wrong, you're wrong. And if you make a bad decision, don't care if you're behind the shield or just a citizen on the street, 
You have to live by that decision. Unquote. Refreshing, I got to say. Refreshing. Justice has not been served yet, but that's a refreshing start. Um, want to talk briefly about the Iran nuclear deal, which, uh, you know, now the Obama administration actually has to do uh, a sell job to the Congress of the United States. I don't know if they're going to be able to pull this off. Maybe, maybe not. But what's interesting is the Israelis, who essentially said whatever they were negotiating was no good, now that they've actually come out with a finished product and still not trusting Barack Obama, they listed specific requirements they say were necessary in any final agreement. Now, this is very interesting that they say they want to, it's almost like a right of first refusal, in fact. What they're saying here is, look, we got a list here. We've checked it twice. And even though Netanyahu has said no, 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 now they're saying conditional yes. Until now, they've argued that the only good deal would, would be to halt all uranium enrichment, which would roll back the clock by about 20 years, and something that the Iranians would never go for. And the Israelis know this. But now they have desired modifications. And what I think they're trying to do is put these modifications on the table <coughs> since I'm sure the Israelis can count and they know that there are a number of American U.S. senators, Republican U.S. senators, who might go for this deal. So now they're trying to mold their requests for changes to some of the concerns that have been expressed by people in Congress. It's not, a, it's not a stupid thing to do, by the way. Might not agree with it, but it is not a stupid thing to do. Now, you know, this is a little bit different. And by the way, uh, these changes include restraints on American negotiators, restraints American negotiators had attempted to obtain in past negotiations. Now, I'm not sure the Obama administration is going to go for this, um, but it's interesting. Now, their additions to the framework include the following. I'm not going to read all of them. I'm not going to uh, read all of them all the way through. But one, an end to all research and development activity on advanced centrifuges in Iran. Two, a significant reduction in the number of centrifuges that are operational or that uh, can quickly become operational if Iran breaks the agreement and decides to build a bomb. Three, the closing of the Fordo facility as an enrichment site, even if the enrichment activities are suspended there. They want it closed, not just suspended. Iranian compliance in revealing its past activities with possible military dimensions, a commitment to ship its stockpile of enriched uranium out of Iran, uh, Iran has already said that they won't ship the stockpile out of the country. Anywhere, anytime access for inspectors charged with verifying the agreement. Uh, and, and that's pretty much it. Now, we'll see. These don't, on their face, look like outrageous changes. They don't. I mean, I, you know, 
I may disagree with the Israeli government uh, injecting themselves into talks that they had been condemning for the last I don't know how long. Netanyahu came over here, spoke to Congress, condemned the very idea of the talks. But the changes don't look all that noxious. They're going to look that noxious to the Iranians, though. And therein lies the problem. And therein lies the trap for the Obama administration. And trust me, it's a trap. Because if he goes about the business, the president, of trying to appease the Israelis on this, the Iranians are going to go crazy. And so, too, will many in the Islamic world. Not the Arab world, the Islamic world. And the general said, wait a minute, man, we've negotiated in good faith, we have the framework of an agreement, and now you come up with this? At the behest of the Israelis? Now, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's how the Iranians are going to react. You know, I mean, you don't have to be a genius to figure that one out, do you? So we'll see how this progresses or doesn't progress moving forward. See, because the pressure now is going to come from Republicans in Congress who are allied with the Israelis. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, but Israel's friends in the Congress are going to now come to the president and say, look, these changes need to take place. And it's going to make the president's sell job ever so slightly more difficult. Jokar Sarnev found guilty on all 30 counts earlier this afternoon in connection with the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. Three people were killed, 260-some-odd were injured. Now, Zokar Sarnev is now 21 years old. I think the time they busted him, he was 19. His older brother, of course, was shot and killed. Says Boston Mayor Martin Walsh, I hope today's verdict provides a small amount of closure for the survivors, families, and all impacted by the violent and tragic events surrounding the 2013 Boston Marathon. The incidents of those days have forever left a mark on our city. Now, the way Massachusetts law works, the jury in this case has found Sarnev guilty. Now they come back again, same jury, you know, because in some states it's not like that. Sometimes they have one jury that decides guilt or innocence, and then the penalty phase is handled by a different jury, not here. The same jury is going to be coming back, I believe, next week to decide whether or not Jokar Sarnev lives or dies, gets sentenced to life in prison or the death penalty. It's a federal jury. Because I don't think Massachusetts has the death penalty on a state level. But the feds tried this young man. His defense all along was that he was a willing dupe to his older brother. Uh, And that, you know, he really wasn't the active person in the conspiracy that led to the bombings. The jury, obviously obviously did not agree with him. None of his relatives attended the trial. None appeared in court today. It was survivors and victims' families who were in court today. And, you know, they were gratified by the outcome. Uh, the defense, by the way, only, only called four people, four witnesses. Five hours worth of testimony. The government, 92 witnesses, over 15 days. 
I guess that was, uh, uh, I guess, probably a given. Uh, the prosecutor said all along that Jokar Sarnev was an equal partner with his brother Tamerlan in carrying out this attack. The prosecutor said, hey, you know, he could have cut out of this. He didn't have to involve himself directly. He didn't have to be so active. It was an ugly, ugly crime. Make no mistake about that. You know, you plant a bomb, kills three people. That's ugly. The question is, does he die for it? Now, I am, you know, personally opposed to the death penalty under any and all circumstances, even something as heinous as this. I'm not down. Other people feel differently, and I respect the fact that other people feel differently. I know people in the Boston area like nothing better than to be the one that pulls the switch that sends those chemicals through this guy's body. I know. Vengeance is... Something takes a long time to dissipate. The quest for vengeance. The quest for justice, on the other hand, is a different story. He's been found guilty on every count on which he was accused. Technically speaking, that's justice. You know, the, the defense argued, again, that if it wasn't for Tamerlan, there would be no Boston Marathon bombing. And that, yeah, Jokar was involved and participated. But, you know, they couldn't pretend he was not guilty. They couldn't. I don't know whether he would have been allowed to plead guilty. Um, the question now is that maybe they were saving their ammo for the penalty phase. Maybe that's where they're going to turn up and, and really present an impassioned defense for this young man's life. I remember accounts of Leopold and Loeb, for those of you who go back that far, who may have read about that case in history. Clarence Darrow represented those two guys who were accused, tried, and convicted of killing like a, a young kid just to see how it felt. And it was about the death penalty or not. And Darrow put on an impassioned defense, and those two were sentenced to life in prison. I think one of them died in prison, as a matter of fact. We shall see what happens with Jokar Sarnet. Rahm Emanuel, you remember him? Worked for Clinton, was a congressman, uh, mayor of Chicago, and still mayor of Chicago. Uh, he was reelected yesterday, survived a challenge from Jesus Garcia, he was seeking to become Chicago's first Latino mayor. Ironically enough, because uh, I was looking at some of the numbers, who voted for Emmanuel, who voted for, uh, or I'll put it this way, who didn't, or who voted for Garcia. And what was interesting was the African-American community went 58 to 42 for Rahm Emanuel. The Latino community went like 68 to 30-something for Garcia. So it, it's interesting to see that the African-American community did not coalesce around what most people perceived 
was a progressive leader. A guy more cut in the Bill de Blasio mold than the Bill Clinton mold. Or mold, I should say. And yet, with 98% of the precincts counted, <clears throat> Rahm Emanuel, 56%, Jesus Garcia, 44%. Now, the fact that Rahm had to run in a, in, in a runoff was potentially embarrassing enough. You know, I mean, he's an incumbent mayor, and he didn't get enough votes to avoid a runoff in this particular election. One wonders whether or not, and, and I mean, if, if past performance is any indication, and, you know, some of these people on TV tell you, you know, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. Well, if that's the case, Rahm Emanuel will spend a little bit of time rewarding his friends and punishing his enemies. He also knows exactly where his enemies are. Now, the question of whether or not he can punish the Latino community for landsliding for his opponent, and it, believe me, in Chicago, there are a lot of ways to punish politicians. Believe me, a lot of ways. Will he go after the Latino community? Will he attempt to try and bring the different communities, poor working people in Chicago, along with the wealthy, who voted, by the way, overwhelmingly for him, but bringing those communities together? Will he work at doing that? I remember, as a matter of fact, when Rudy Giuliani won re-election in 1997. And Rudy Giuliani got up at his, at his acceptance and went into a whole thing about wanting to you know, create a, a, a more unified city and bring all of the different groups, Latinos and African-Americans, bring everybody together. And then he probably really didn't. We'll see whether Rahm Emanuel is up to that task. We're going to tell you a little bit about the election in Ferguson, Missouri, because that happened too. But right now, we have a very, very special guest on our telephone lines. She is the founder and president of the Black Institute. She's also a founder of the Working Families Party. She is one of the greatest organizers our city has ever seen. I'm talking about New York now. Let us say good evening to Miss Bertha Lewis. Bertha, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to cover a couple of issues, but let me cover first and foremost, because I know a little bit about this. MWBEs, for those of you who don't know what that is, that's Minority and Women Business Enterprises. The record of the city of New York in dispersing contracts to MWBEs, Bertha, is abysmal. Why don't you tell us how abysmal? Because a new report just came out about this. Well, the title of the report is not good enough. What the city does and its percentage, 96% of the contracts go to white businesses, only 4% of the city contracts go to minority and women-owned businesses. It is not only outrageous, appalling, um, it is immoral. It's, it's unbelievable that a city that is 65% people of color, a majority minority city, if you will, would even allow only 4% of its contracts to go to minority and women-owned businesses. It's, it's outrageous. 
Professor, how long has it been like this? Historically, has it ever been higher than this? No, never. You can go back to Koch. You can go to Giuliani. You can go under Bloomberg. And everyone has known about this for forever. When John Liu was the city controller, his report was that it was only 2%. And folks said then, oh, we're going to do better. We're going to do better. So we think that highlighting this issue right now, especially with the changing demographics of this city, now is the time we have the most progressive city council, the most progressive mayor. We, we have activists and organizers and, and, and advocates. Now, this town is ripe to finally, finally do something about this abysmal situation. It's just not right. And especially when folks walk around this town and they see the new bird that represents New York City, which is the crane. Cranes everywhere. A trillion dollars worth of business in this town. Billions of dollars going out of the window. Taxpayers subsidizing um, unbridled development. And minority and women-owned businesses have to scrap and scratch for a paltry 4%. Bertha Lewis is our guest. She is founder and president of the Black Institute, Bertha, um, you have certainly known Mayor de Blasio for a good while. He's considered a friend. Um, does the responsibility for this abysmal percentage lie squarely at his feet? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is the new boss. And because I have a relationship, and I do consider him a friend, and I think he should have a second term, but this has to be fixed. You know, when you have a friend or family, you know, it's your obligation to, as we used to say old school, pull their coat to a situation. <laughs> and we need to be a leader in this. It finally needs to get fixed. And we can't have an administration that prides itself on combating inequality to have such an egregious example of that. We just can't. Bertha, um, the state, and I mean, most people consider Bill de Blasio a bit more progressive than Andrew Cuomo, but the state's doing a better job on this, no? Well, the, the numbers would have you, uh, would bear that out. The, the state at this point is at 25.12%. Now, again... I don't want to do happy talk with everything is perfect on the state level. We need a, little, a lot more transparency on how those numbers are broken down, when those numbers uh, are calculated, how they're calculated. Because there's a great number of MWBE contracts that start out, and then they get kind of cut off in the middle of the job, yet people are still claiming those MWBE numbers. We need to know um, uh, in a more transparent fashion who, what, when, and where these contracts are. However, um, that is only to the good, because if the state is doing much better, 
then the city ought to say, hey, let's emulate what they're doing. For one thing, the state actually has a full-time chief diversity officer. Is that Alfonso David? does not. The city doesn't? The city doesn't. Uh, the state controller does, the governor does, and the city controller does, and the city does not. First, I have to ask you, um, and, and this maybe speaks to the need for a chief diversity officer. In many years, and, and since we're both members of the 51 Club, if you know what I mean, <laughs> we both know a little bit about this, uh, there has been, <clears throat> excuse me, a fair amount of what Don King used to call trickeration in yes. awarding MWBE contracts. People put their wives down as, as uh, women-owned businesses. Well, that's um, called, that's called men in skirts. <laughs> okay, right? But, I mean, is that that's still what we call on? Yes, absolutely. And absolutely there's, um, there's fraud that goes on. Not only do we have the syndrome of men in skirts, where people put their wives and, 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 and daughters and, and females as a front, we actually have fraud being committed where we have white firms putting men and women of color as a front. So you got to pay attention to this stuff, actually make sure that things are enforced, and that's why I say you need a full-time chief diversity officer. You need an address. You need a place where all of this stuff comes together. If this is a serious problem, which it has been for many, many years, then let's take it seriously. Let's not have someone who deals with our MWBE problems also have to be counsel, have to deal with tech, and is wearing you know three, four different hats Take this seriously. That's one place to start. And the second place is to amend local law one. Make it work, enforce it, and make MWBE real goals, hard, well, not even goals. Let's make sure that we have MWBEs have hard numbers. Don't tell me about, oh, I tried and I can't find and, you know, I sent out some flyers. You know, we've got to turn this around. These are real people, real Absolutely. people behind these numbers. This is not something that's, that's abstract, and the city's got to do better. Bertha Lewis is our guest. She's the founder and president of the Black Institute. Bertha, having had a, just a little bit of experience uh, with MWBEs on the state level, one thing I found was that uh, MWBE participation and I guess compliance, uh, vary greatly from agency to agency. Not to name any names, but there were some agencies that were all in on this and other agencies that avoided it <clears throat> and fought against it uh, with every last breath in their bodies. How is the agency to agency outlook here in New York? I mean, granted, it's only 4%, so I can't imagine there's anybody doing 20, but are, are, is it an agency-wide problem? It is an agency-wide problem here on the city level. And by the way, not all agencies are covered. And that's another thing that has to happen. Only 30, 
two of the 74 agencies. What's up with that? Yeah, the other thing, <laughs> The other thing is, and again, I'm not trying to knock the state's numbers, but you know who carries the brunt of the state's numbers? The school construction authority. Yes, Over yes. 50% is on the backs and the shoulders of the school construction authority. That's unfair. It's unsustainable. And if the school construction authority, Governor Cuomo, is doing such a good job, you need to have those same practices throughout every agency and committee and commission on the state level. And Lord knows we definitely need to have it on the city level. And we need to let city agencies know this is no joke. We expect results, and we expect them toot sweet. There's too many MWBEs out here in this city, and even those around the country. MWBEs are doing so much better in other cities and in other states than they're doing. um, They're outpacing New York City. We can't have that. New York City should be the leader in this. Let me ask you this, because one specific problem with MWBE participation, at least they say it's a problem, is the question of surety bonding. Because I'm not sure what the city law is, but I think the state, uh, under the state law, to participate in MWBE has to put up about 100 grand in order to to be considered, even for subcontracts. Is that surety bonding a big problem in increasing MWBE participation here in the city? And if so, what do you do about it? Well, first of all, access to capital, period, is an issue. On the front end, we don't have enough investment dollars being invested in either startups or um, functioning MWBEs. You know, they're capital starved. We also have a problem where if you do get a contract and you go out there and you spend your money on the front end to get the supplies, hire the personnel, and, and, and all the equipment, you have to wait for months and months and months and months to get paid. Mm-hmm. A lot of businesses have gone under because unlike the big guys who can, you know, a year waiting for them because they have so much going on, it's no problem. And we claim that we have programs and pools of funds to help on the surety bond issue, but guess what? It's not working. So we think that there should be a bigger pool of money, and if we have specific CDOs, they can oversee it. I know there's billions and billions and billions of dollars in city pension funds as well as state pension funds. We Mm -hmm. invest in everything else. We think we need a 1% solution, which would give us enough money for venture capital, investments, for startup, as well as resources for existing MWBEs, and also to supply a substantial loan pool that would be revolving 
so that when the MWBEs get these contracts, not only do they have the bonding and the certification, that takes resources, infrastructure, that takes money. So don't punish us in a sort of catch-22. We can't get the money, therefore we can't meet the hurdles. We've, this is a Gordian knot. Mm. Somebody's got to take a sword to it, and that's why the Black Institute decided to put out this report, because at least that could be the sword that cuts through this, and we can stop accepting things that are not good enough. It's not good enough what the government on the city and state level are doing, and it certainly is a myth that MWBEs are not good enough. Bertha Lewis is our guest. She's the founder and president of the Black Institute, founder also of the Working Families Party, was director of ACORN, which, you know, uh, Bertha, I have to say, a lot of people try and make it sound like ACORN was some disgraced organization. I know that's crap, all right? I know well, the work that y'all did with ACORN because uh, yeah, I covered well, it. And I just and wanted to you. say, uh, I, I think, you know, people ought to laud you for your work with ACORN as much as with WFP. Well, I, uh, I thank you for that. Um, I am the ACORN lady, will always be. <laughs> Uh, forever and ever, and you're right. And the solace that I take is, you know, you can gauge the the righteousness of the work that you're doing by the viciousness of the attacks. And the things were outrageous, but guess what? I'm still here, and in fact, Acorn spawned the Black Institute. So you know what, fellas? <laughs> We're not going anywhere. Life is long. And you, you, if we do it under one name or we do it under another name. But we're going to keep doing it. All right. Final uh, question on MWBEs, Bertha. And then I want to switch gears real quick. Um, mm -hmm. How do, uh, do MWBEs do at all well with partnerships between the city uh, and, and private business interests, whether they be developers or whatever, or is it still around that 4% number? No, we don't do well. In fact, you know, anybody that looks around the city sees this tremendous, um, tremendous amount of development. And, yes, we're talking about public agencies, but there needs to be a real vigorous effort in terms of the private sector, too. Here's where we are, because nothing is truly private. Why do I say that? Um, we get investment of pension funds to big Wall Street firms like Goldman Sachs. We have very rich developers. Even Trump gets subsidies tax breaks, and all kinds of things that bleed into it. We have these public-private partnerships. So no one is truly, truly all private. Private enterprise also depends on the public largesse. Absolutely. And the private sector needs to be challenged also. You know, this is just the beginning. You know, we're this not good enough report is not just one and done. 
there's a big follow-up coming. And here's what we know, that just as people are questioning this 421A tax break, mm-hmm. right, for developers, and just as people are questioning uh, the amount of affordable housing, you know, don't think that we're only training our sites on the public sector. We're training our sites on the private sector because we also know that there's nothing truly private, not in this town. We That's also know. Sure. We also before know, I let you go, I wanted to ask you uh, a couple of quick questions. One, uh-huh. your thoughts on the uh, police murder, because, uh, I mean, it's on video, of Walter Scott down in North Charleston, South Carolina. First of all, let me say this. I mean, we're part of the 51 Club, so we've been around for a very long time. Absolutely. And I've been called every name but a child of God. And for many, many years, those of us who have worked on the ground, we've seen it every single day somewhere. And when we've tried to talk about it, we are race baiters and hate mongers and, you know, get over this race thing. But thank God I'm in the 51 Club and I have lived to see the triumph of technology because there but for the grace of a video, another black man would be lying in the dirt and it would be all his fault and another white police officer would have gotten away with murder. I'm glad that people are calling it murder because it was. And imagine if there wasn't a videotape there. We used to be human videotapers when we would try to talk about what's been going on. It is horrendous. Anyone that says we are post-racial or that there's no problem here, you know, every single day we are seeing some young men and old men of color, unarmed, being shot and brutalized by the police every day. South Carolina, hey, guess what? Young black men have been shot in the back in the South Bronx. So Very true. It's Bruce, were you surprised at all and, that, that it was uh, this officer was immediately charged with murder as opposed to what happened in Staten Island yeah. with Eric Garner or as opposed to what happened in Ferguson, Missouri with Michael Brown? It, well, something's happening here. Exactly right. That was exactly what should have happened. One, call it what it is. And I have to commend the authorities there in that county for saying this is murder, we are arresting you right away. Your badge, your blue uniform will not protect you and shield you. You committed murder. And so I was surprised how swift it was, but I was also heartened because that's what we march about. That's what we demonstrate about every day. That's what we've been calling on for years, and that's what we've been calling on ever since Trayvon Martin. Very true. Uh, you know, when we talked before we went on the air, I said I was going to ask you about something. 
I don't know if I'm going to bother now because I think, you know, you haven't read that particular article. And sometimes, you know, it just doesn't make sense to bring up stuff that I, I don't know for a fact is actually going on. You know what I'm saying? Well, well, remind me again what it what was the, the, issue. The, the thing about some divisions within the Black Lives Matter movement. Well, let me just say this. Not having read an article at all, it doesn't surprise me that someone would be saying, ooh, there's dissent. Again, being a member of the 51 Club and being around, it reminds me of COINTELPRO. Uh -oh. We understand every movement from civil rights to anti-war to gay rights to women's rights to vegetarian rights. Every single movement of significance in this country has been a threat to the status quo. And what is the first thing that you hear? Ooh, there's dissension within the ranks. You know what? You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't undo <laughs> Black Lives Matter. And so I always take it with a grain of salt when people tell me that a movement that is very powerful and strong, ooh, people are fighting. Oh, really? So what? What does it have to do with anything? Black Lives Matter, period. Absolutely. Bertha Lewis, as always, a joy to talk to you. Thanks so much for spending the time. Well, thank you, Mark. We should talk more often. Absolutely. I really like your show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. You Have a great evening. You too. Bye-bye. Bertha Lewis, the president, founder of of the Black Institute. We're going to take a very, very quick break. We're going to come back. If there are people that want to talk about any of these issues, I would love to hear from my main man, Ike, down in South Carolina. Uh, I'm not sure if he's near Charleston or he may be near Columbia, but wherever you are, our number is 888-874-4888. Or if you want to text, you can text me at 917-830-3023, 917 Two, three, and the text will come up in my email, and we will uh, move on from there. So stay with us. We're going to play a little bit of music, my main music, Plum Blossom, and we'll be right back. Seven o'clock. 
the Mark Riley show. Just talking to Bertha Lewis and uh, some, some powerful words, both about MWBEs and about North Charleston, South Carolina. Now, a couple stories we want to share with you before we go. Um, you know, we had been speaking, I guess it was last year sometime, about the drought in the state of California and about what that meant in the long term and the short term. We actually had a guest on to talk about it. And we were talking about it. I'm not doing saying this to blow my own horn, but we were talking about this before a lot of other people were talking about this. And now there are new water rules in the state of California. And what's interesting is they don't affect every municipality in the state equally. Apparently, some of the state's biggest water users, including, no surprise here, Beverly Hills, Newport Beach, and Palo Verdes would have to cut their water consumption by 35%. This is a preliminary plan that's been issued by state officials in the Golden State to meet a 25% mandatory statewide reduction in urban water use. 135 communities face that 35% order. Uh, 18 communities, including San Francisco, face reductions of only 10% because they've made more progress in cutting water consumption than some of their brothers and sisters in the South, and actually some of their brothers and sisters in the North. Um, you know, somebody, I was talking with somebody about this the other day, and they, they said, like, why is it that there is no, uh, no way to try and figure out some kind of technology to take advantage of places where water is plentiful, getting it to places like California where it's not plentiful. Why, why is the technology not there? Why? I mean, we've done a lot of other stuff technologically. I mean, look at, look at you know, some of the stuff we've done, miniaturizing telephones and doing all these kinds of things, smartphones, the whole thing. So why we can't do that, I'm not sure. It would seem to me to make... Perfect sense. And anyway, I think we have Harriet, my good friend from Bayside on the line. Harriet, how you doing? Okay, how are you? Doing great. I'm, um, I hope you had a happy Easter. And I hope you had a great Passover as well. Yes. I wanted to talk about Netanyahu. Go ahead. Uh, all right. Uh, I disagree with you. All right, yes, he shouldn't have come and spoken without speaking to the president first. Yes, uh, Boehner was wrong in inviting him, yeah. But what he had to say, at least to me, made a lot of sense. And uh, especially now, if they get, I think the, it's okay to have a deal, but you have to have a better deal than the one you have. But Harriet, when he came here, he made it sound like there was no deal on God's green earth that he could support. Now he's saying, well, we can support this, but you got to make changes to it. Did you listen to the whole speech? What, Netanyahu? Yeah. Came to Congress? Yeah. Yeah, because I was listening to a bad deal is, is worse than no deal. And, um, he has to, that he should give up, that they should give up terrorism because they do. Um, 
give money Look, to terrorists all over the something. world. If every yeah. country that either supported or involved itself in terrorism, including, by the way, some of Israel's allies, stopped terrorism, we wouldn't have terrorism out here. You think the Saudis don't support terrorism? Uh, not as much as Iran. Well, wait a minute. What, how many people that were involved in the September 11th plot were Saudis? Um, they were, um, let's see, there was one man from Pakistan, and three of them were Saudis, but not by the Saudi government, which was Saudis opposed Saudis. to it. Fifteen of them and, were Saudis. Uh, what I wanted to say participated were Saudis. So what does I that wanted mean to that say was are somehow supporting terrorism, or what? what and by the way, uh, yeah, you know the Saudis beheaded eighty-eight people last year. That's terrible. But yeah, what I wanted to say is, before nineteen seventy-nine, there was not all this trouble about terrorism worldwide the way it is now. It was it became far worse after nineteen seventy nine. Well that was during the Iran hostage thing. Listen, Harriet, I gotta run because uh, okay. we're almost out of time. But thank you so much for calling. Always great to talk with you, all right? You too. Bye bye. Have a good one. Bye bye. Uh before we go, and this wasn't supposed to be my to the ridiculous thing, but I, I gotta say something about this. Do you know they put up a statue of a, a bust, I guess, a sculpture of Edward Snowden? in uh, the Prison Ship Martyrs Monument in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And as soon as they put it up, quote, the authorities went and covered it up and then took it away. So then some people came along, uh, a group called the Illuminator, and they actually cast a hologram of Edward Snowden on top of this monument where his uh, uh, statue had been. And I, I just, first of all, I think it's wonderful. I said a long time ago, and a lot of people disagree with me when I said it. I said a long time ago, somewhere they need to put up a statue of Edward Snowden in this country. Because he did what a lot of us didn't have the guts to do, and he informed the entire nation. Time for us to get out of here. My thanks, of course, as always, to Jason Taubenfeld. We'll be back next week to do it all over again live at 6 o'clock Eastern. Stay tuned for all the great programming on the Progressive Radio Network. For the Mark Riley Show, I am Mark Riley. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening and a better week ahead. <laughs> 